0: Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 26. The last time we were together, we learned a poignant lesson about ministry by comparing uh, Philip the deacon and Simon the sorcerer and seeing the differences in their ministries. Today was going to be a continuation of Philip's ministry, and next week we're going to see Saul's conversion, to who eventually becomes the Apostle Paul. Starting with verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So in context, we saw the last time and the time before that the Jerusalem persecution sends Philip to Samaria along with other believers. This is an impetus to a possible Samaritan Pentecost type event. Something big's going on in, S- in Samaria because Simon the sorcerer sees the laying on of hands. He sees some incredible ma- manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And he, in a moment of whatever, he he's wants to buy that power. So there's something big going on in Samaria, right? Now, I want to show you on the map that we have. For those of you who are listening, we have visual aids. Today we're going to be Uber Church. There we go. How do you like that? <laughs> okay, if you look on the map... I even have a pointer. Here's uh, here's uh the Jerusalem area. Persecution spreads the believers outward. So some of them go up this way to Samaria, right? And then Philip goes up to Samaria. You have this event going on. And then he ends up, Philip ends up going south towards this road, which is a commonly traveled road between Jerusalem and Gaza. So Philip heads down this way. Uh, towards this road and meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we see later on he goes to Azotus and then Caesarea. Second map that we have um, gives a little bit more detail and I hope that you're not having flashbacks to high school g- geography, but I'm putting this up here for a reason. So what you have is you have the Middle East, you have Israel right about here, and then as we go towards Africa, you have Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia and Somalia area. And this is called or considered the Horn of Africa, like the boot of Italy. It's not a horn or a boot, but it looks like it topically. So Ethiopia is situated by the Horn of Africa. Now I bring that up because the question is, and different scholars debate this, was he really from Ethiopia or was he from the old Nubian Empire? Those of you who study this, the Nubian Empire was right around here, And the Nubian Empire got swallowed up by these three countries. Okay, so you have your geography lesson there. We Again, we're going to come back to this and we're going to talk about the distance that this eunuch travels. So that's really kind of crucial to the story here. Now, between verses 26 and 27, some time must have passed because the distance that I showed you in the first map from Samaria to the intersection of the road between Gaza and Jerusalem was greater than depending on the intersection point, was greater than 40 miles. So this was a good distance that Philip had to go from Samaria to get to this road to run into this Ethiopian eunuch. And he must have thought, I don't know what he thought, and um, in some, in sometimes in the scripture, God talks to a man or a woman and, and has them fulfill his will, and sometimes they're rebellious, sometimes they are confused, sometimes they don't understand. But even with Jonah, eventually he was obedient, So, I mean, just put yourself in Philip's position. He's got time to think about this. All this stuff is happening in Samaria, and God says, go into the desert. I could imagine Philip saying, or even thinking in his mind, wait a minute, I don't get it. Look what's going on in Samaria, Lord, and you want me to go into the desert? What gives here, right? But he was obedient. He must have thought to himself, there must be some mistake, why would I be going into the desert? What could there possibly be there for me to do in the desert? Look what's going on in Samaria. I'm just curious by a show of hands, how many of you in your own personal life like it when God calls you out of something that's happening to the desert? Because we, in, our, in our lives, we all have desert experiences, don't we? Maybe some of you today have recently been in the desert. Maybe some of you today or this morning are in the desert right now. And you know what I'm saying. You're feeling my vibes, right? Lord, I was doing something. This is certainly inconvenient for me right now. There must be some type of mistake, Lord. You know, it's never fun when God calls us into the desert or out of our comfort zones. Either way, it's it's not enjoyable. Into the desert or out of our comfort zones. But as we see with Philip, when we're obedient, even in desert experiences, the Lord can produce good fruit. It reminds me of Isaiah 35, chapter 6, or 5 and 6. I'll just read two quick verses here. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Obviously, this is messianic. This was some 800 years prior to Jesus coming on the scene. Uh, and it's messianic. It talks about his miracles. But also streams in the desert. Is the, the Messiah's obedience produced incredible fruit in the hearts of the people at that time. And when we're obedient to God, God can make a desert wasteland come to life again as he did with the children of Israel in the desert. It's desert. It's hot. It's dry. There's sand. There's nothing here. The children of Israel, what are we going to do? Maybe we should have stayed in Egypt. What do you want? Do you want manna from heaven, raining from heaven, bread from heaven? Okay, you got it. Do you want quail? I'll send quail to fly in. Do you need water? Water will come out of the desert. God can make streams in the desert. Pretty amazing stuff. And you got to picture it. You got to picture the desert overflowing and teeming with life. That's what God can do. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and told him what to do. What did he tell him to do? He told him to be obedient to the scripture and obedient to God's will. God told Philip first via the angel, the angel of the Lord, and then he told them directly by way of the Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us. Unfortunately today, sometimes we can use that word term too loosely. Well God told me, God told me this or God told me that. Some want to use it as a way to seem maybe more spiritual than others. Some may just be confused about what God's voice says. And some may use it as a form of manipulation. Maybe a way to say, I want to do this and I don't want you to question me because of course God told me. And if you're questioning me, you're questioning God. So don't question me on it. I had an example. um, I was on staff for two churches so I'll try to be as vague as possible. (laughs) I remember a situation where uh, a man tried out for a, a specific ministry and he had a lot of ability and talent. And it came time where he was set set to go to be in this ministry and uh praise god i found out uh that he was having an ongoing adulterous relationship so at the very least i tried to get him on the phone and say you know is this true and he said yeah it's true and uh you know it works for me and my family and he said because after all god wants me to be happy i actually went like this with the phone (laughs) are you kidding me (laughs) i mean you realize you can't be in ministry at this point right But it's amazing as if for the first time in history, human history, God's going to set aside his word and set aside his precepts and say to some individual, sure, you could break all my laws, no problem, just for you, I'll allow it. Or God told me to do something, and then God told me to do something else, and then God told me to abandon that and do something else, and on and on until it becomes confusion. The scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 14.33 that God is the God of order not the God of confusion. I've actually loved people enough to say to them, and it, it takes a lot of courage to say, you know what, I don't think God told you that. Do you realize that people could have been stoned to death in the Old Testament for misrepresenting divine fiat? Okay? In Deuteronomy 18:20 20 through 22, it talks about the false prophet. You may say, boy, Joe, you're making a leap from somebody who says God told me a lot to the false prophet well not really because what is a prophet a prophet's a person who says hey everybody god told me to do this and it's going to happen you know it's, it's something it's future event that i have inside information about that's going to happen right so here's a checklist to see if god is really speaking to us about something some three good grounded rules for us to uh, be able to take in number one what god tells us does it go against his sacred word Because you can rest assured that if you think that God told you to do something that goes against Scripture, I can guarantee you God didn't tell you that. (laughs) Number two, does the suggestion in any way bring the Lord or his reputation, even as his representatives, us as his representatives, does it bring the Lord dishonor? Because if it brings the Lord dishonor, God didn't tell us that. And three, does it cause confusion or chaos? Because the Bible tells us that God is the God of order again. To discern the voice of God could be one of the most difficult things to do for a believer, but we can start and we can learn to discern the Lord's voice more and more through prayer and being in the Word of God. Somebody talked to me about a game that um, I believe it was in another church. They did it with their uh, teenagers. And what they did was they spread out this big plastic sheet on the ground and they had one of the teens get down on all fours, and they blindfolded the teen, right? And then throughout that sheet, they would take oatmeal or some really gooey, disgusting stuff, and they would plop it in different spots, sort of as landmines. And the person who was blindfolded had a coach on his right side, another teen who was the voice of God represented. And the voice of God would tell them how to negotiate their way through the plastic sheet without falling in the oatmeal or putting their hands in it. And if you put your hands in it, you're lost. And then there was about three other people who went around the blindfolded person who would shout at the person representing your own thoughts, the voice of Satan, or any other thing that didn't represent God. And they would purposely give them the wrong directions so they would go into the oatmeal. And it was a really neat exercise for the people, for the kids to see how to discern the voice of God. If you follow the voice of God, you'll do well in life. God says it all the way from the Old Testament. If you do not follow the voice of God, all you'll you'll get for yourself is heartache and sorrow. I often say that God directs my life. Um... And in hindsight, sometimes uh, I look back and I say, wow, God really was speaking to me. Sure, because hindsight is 2020, right? I rarely say God specifically told me prior to, and when I do, um, it usually means that I, I feel very strongly about what God's telling me. Well, God told Philip to follow his word, and that's what God is telling you and me. One thing I can be sure about what God told me is he told me to follow this instruction manual that is is definite god wants to speak to us but again we lear- need to learn how to discern the voice of god and that starts with a relationship that's why we preach relationship here you know my wife and i have been married for about 10 years now and uh there's times that i can finish her thoughts and there's times that she could finish my words because we got to know each other so well even in that short amount of time that we just know each other certain looks that one of us may have we can read those those looks now, let me, let me bring that over to our relationship with God. I'm not saying you're gonna, well, God can read my mind and yours, so we're sort of at a disadvantage. But the way for us to understand the mind of God, to be, to have the mind of Christ, is to have that relationship with God. Some people say, well, the religion thing is good for me, I'm gonna stop there, because the whole relationship thing between me and God is a little weird, I don't wanna go there. But, that's, that's not true. It's good to have a relationship with God so we know him. We can have that intimate relationship with him. Verse 27. We're introduced to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, uh, Candace was the queen. Now, Candace was a dynastic title, uh, much like Pharaoh or Caesar. Pharaoh was, was like the king and Caesar was like was the emperor, right? A eunuch was an emasculated male. Um, and if you actually read some of this, the ancient writings, it was an awful practice that normally an invading army, when they conquered, that's why people would fight really hard not to be invaded because a lot of the males would end up being uh, emasculated, which definitely wasn't a good thing. And what the reason why they did that was if they had to put people that they trusted in government positions, that was a way of saying, well, they couldn't reproduce, they had no desire for women, so if they were to watch the harem, or if they were to be in a governmental position, they would be assured that there wouldn't be a coup because those desires would be gone, right? Now, by the time of the Greeks and the Romans, some speculate that being a eunuch or the title eunuch was really a, more of a title than an actual physical uh, deficiency there. Either way, this was a man of authority, this eunuch. He was a treasurer, probably an African Jewish convert who was really seeking God. Now, why do I say he was really seeking God? Because if we go back to the the slide, that's where the geography comes in again. Look at the trip that this man had to make. Whether it was Ethiopia or part of the old Nubian kingdom, look at the travel all the way up Africa, across, and into Jerusalem. Talk about a long ride to church. (laughs) Sometimes people complain, gee, I gotta get up in the morning, you know, it's 30 minutes to church, boy, this is, maybe I'll stay home today. Now that should really put things in perspective for us. This guy had to travel months to get to church, right? Because where was the place to worship if you were a Jewish convert? You would go to Jerusalem. So it didn't matter where you were in the in the world, you were required on certain feasts and certain holidays to actually make the trek to Jerusalem. And that was pretty, uh, you know, it, with, with a caravan, that was a pretty tough tough trek through the desert. So this really shows this man's dedication. And I tell you, sometimes when we think about our dedication to the Lord... We have to look at this this, this uh, eunuch's dedication to the Lord. Verse 28, he was reading um, the scrolls of Isaiah. Could have been the Septuagint version, which was available at the time. Uh, but this definitely was a man of status because not everyone could afford their own copies. It wasn't until the 16th century with the Gutenberg printing press that they were able to mass produce books and writings. Verse 31, the eunuch says to Philip, Philip says to the eunuch, you know, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says to Philip, how can I know unless somebody guides me? You know, the whole world is filled with people who ask that question. The whole world is filled with people who have that question. How can I know unless somebody guides me? And you know what? Sometimes God puts us in positions where we can actually reach those people and help to guide them. There was many men uh, in my life that were great men of God that even though I wasn't ready at different periods of my life, when finally the the word of God really took root in my heart, I still remember all these different men and these milestones of people who tried to help guide me through to understand the Lord. There was a situation that we had where uh, we have a a kitten and uh, he ended up getting worms. So I'm thinking, well, what good could come out of this cat getting worms except for me paying a $100 veterinary bill? My wife takes the cat to the vet, and uh, it just as amazing the turn of events that, that ensued. She meets a young girl who is being introduced. She, I think she went, she's gone, went going to one of the Calvaries and start learning about God, but still, she's in a fragile stage. And it was really cool because my wife got a chance to talk to her, and the girl had a lot of questions and a lot of spiritual attacks, maybe some opposition from friends, etc., family. And it was great because my wife was able to spend that time with her to help to guide her and to set her on the right path. So my question to you is are you someone to guide? Right? Like Philip, are you someone to guide someone? Romans ten, I just want to read uh three verses ten thirteen. Paul says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who who bring glad tidings of good things. The word for preacher or evangelist comes from the Greek word euangelistes. Now there's a cognate word in the Greek that's euangelion, which means the gospel or good message, right? Good news. If we break down euangelion into its component parts, we have angelion, And in the Greek, that means good message. That's literally what the gospel means. It's a good message. Now, some may say to me, but I'm not an evangelist. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Well, here's my question to you then. Could you give somebody a good message? Have you talked to somebody who's been ill, somebody who's been in the hospital, a relative that you may have taken care of, okay, and you've comforted them with, with good words, now take the leap and give them the best message. It's pretty easy to do. Take that leap because the best message, a good message is, you know, I'll pray for you. Um, you know, I, I'm sure the doctors know what they're doing. Uh, you know, have a good, a good attitude. You know, be optimistic. I'm here for you if you need me. That's a good message. But here's the, the best message. The best message is we're all sinners. Okay, we're hopeless. We have nowhere to go but down to hell, right? But what God did was he found a way to bridge the gap between sinful man, rebellious man, and a loving, holy God. And there's a big chasm that can't be bridged. Until God came up with the idea to send his son Jesus Christ into the world to die for our sins, to die a substitutionary death, to shed his blood on the cross. Uh, On the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. And if we just believe in him, he's that bridge. And he brings a holy God, a loving God, with sinful man. He took the sins of the world and, he's, and we've crossed that bridge again. That's a great message, isn't it? That's the best message that's out there. What can I do? I'm insignificant. Well, just like my wife and many other people here, you can be at the right place in the right time, be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. And you know what? Maybe you don't have all the words. Maybe you, you don't have it all put together in your heart. But you know what? Jesus says, in those times, the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need. There was a um, uh, conversation between D.L. Moody and a businessman, a guy he met for the first time. And uh, they're talking, and D.L. Moody, he, this man doesn't know it's, it's Moody. And Moody says to the man, I, I, Sir, I want to ask you about your salvation. And the businessman says, That's none of your business. And Moody goes, On the contrary, it is my business. And the man goes, Well, you must be D.L. Moody then. There's a real conversation, right? It is our business. I mean, not that we should be pushy and we should be sensitive to the Spirit's leading, but... I think if God could give us a heavenly picture like Paul got and to really see what was going on in the spirit world and what was happening, you know, through the world, I think that we would say, boy, we would be a little bit more on fire for the lost. We need to have that that fire for the lost. Verse 32. The place in the scripture where he read was this, quote, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shearer. So he opened not his mouth. And his, in his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. End quote. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. In verse 35, he says, beginning at this scripture, beginning at this scripture, and then you see where I put it in quotes. Isaiah 53, 7 through 8 is juxtaposed into this portion of the books of Acts, the book of Acts. So my question is, if he was beginning at this scripture, where else did Philip go? Well, what do you think? Maybe the New Testament? Maybe Romans? Maybe Matthew? Hey, those weren't written yet. Apparently, or... Many believe that James, the book of James, was actually one of the earliest New Testament books, which was written somewhere between A.D. 46 through A.D. 49. And at this point, the Apostle Paul is not even converted yet. We'll see in in Acts chapter 9, his conversion. So that eliminates him. So what is Philip referring to? Where, Where is he going? From what scripture to where? Well, he starts at Isaiah. Obviously, he's going into the Old Testament. What people don't realize is you can lead a Jewish person to their beloved Messiah through the Old Testament. If God has put on your heart a love for the Jewish people and the desire to give them the good news of salvation, he'll also give you a desire for the Old Testament. Some people are intimidated by the Old Testament. But just like the apostles in the beginning, they didn't get a lot of Jesus' teachings. A lot of it actually didn't come to fruition even until after the ascension. But if you have a desire and a love for the Jewish people and you pray about that, Because God will help you to understand and open up the Old Testament to your heart. A great understanding. In case in point, uh, let's go back to Isaiah 53. Let me give you a little bit more of this picture. I'll just read seven verses. Now remember, this was written close to 800 years prior to Jesus presenting himself via the virgin birth right 800 years earlier if you read it if you actually have never read this before just think of who this might sound like based on your knowledge of of you know jesus and and people verse 1 isaiah 53 it says who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground This was the spiritual situation at the time of Israel. It was dry. There was no prophet in the land for 400 years prior to Jesus coming on the scene. He has no form or comeliness that when we see him, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So it wasn't about his charisma. It wasn't about his looks. It was about his message and his sacrifice that he made for the people. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This shows his sorrowful ministry, uh, a lot of the things that he bore, the rejection from his own people for his uh, ministry. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. For he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. This is a picture of the substitutionary or the substitution. He took the sins, our sins. He wasn't um, he wasn't crucified for his own fault. He was crucified for our fault. God didn't turn away from him for the first time in eternity because he did something wrong. It's because we did something wrong. You see the, the, the scripture starts to change into a substitution, right? Substitutionary death. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. A picture of the Old Testament sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, the sheep that were led away and the, the blood was shed on these sheep uh, for the children of Israel so this, their sins could be atoned for. And last verse, verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. This was a picture, all of Isaiah 53 is a picture of the Messiah's birth, his life, his ministry, his sufferings, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection if there's still any people who are skeptical and say, well, I don't know, Isaiah 53 really sounds like Jesus, but I was taught that actually it was about the nation of Israel. Well, first thing is, they're using pronouns. Okay? Uh, he, and and it's talking about a man, people, a person in specific. Number two, I did a little research, and if you're taking notes, if you're concerned at all about any of the rabbinical commentary commentaries, the ancient rabbis, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, folio 98b, the Midrash, Ruth Rabbah, the Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman and the Quaraite Yefeth ben Ali are only some sources of the ancient rabbis who said before Jesus came along, this scripture is messianic. So it, there was a consensus among the rabbis at the time when, when the Messiah comes, he will fill these scriptures. He will be a man of sorrows. Unfortunately, over the years, things have been sanitized. And people say, well, they don't really believe that. Yes, they do. The contemporary rabbis at the time believed that this was messianic. Okay, so Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. It talks about the atoning death, reminiscent of the Levitical sacrifices in the Old Testament and the Passover to cover for the sins. And Philip had to explain this to him. The eunuch said, well, you know, is, is it talking about him or is it about another man? And Philip guided him through that scripture. Verse 36, he had a desire to be baptized, the eunuch. He saw water and he says, what hinders me to be baptized? He had a desire to identify with Christ. And the Greek word for baptism indicates a total immersion. So he sees this body of water and he wants to get dunked, right? Kind of reminds me of, um, was it August 11th? We went to Ocean Grove as a church with other churches to do the baptisms in the ocean. And it was really an awesome day. I, lo- I really look forward to the baptisms. Although I don't know why we always do it on the same time because every time we go, they ha- the lifeguards have the red flags and that means it's a rough surf. But uh, <laughs> so, you know, this is the situation. I'm there. And, you know, the red flags are up, there's rough surf, the the waves are crashing down. And why is it that the majority of the people that want to be baptized all tell me secretly, I can't swim, so hold on tight to me. So you got the red flags, right, the people who can't swim, and then a woman comes up and she's had back surgery. Boy, put a little more pressure on me. (laughs) Anything else? (laughs) But you know what was cool? They loved it. We got a lot of pictures of the baptisms. People were coming up out of the water with smiles and with rejoicing with their hands in the air. And uh, I loved it. Anthony loved it. They loved it. We all loved it. And I could just picture this Ethiopian eunuch saying, what stops me from going in that water right now and you baptizing me? And he was excited to go in that water. What we'll also see too is that in the Bible... um, curiously absent from all the baptisms are infants they're all adults and whether we do a baby dedication or whether we do a baptism it's an it's a mature decision to say hey i want to identify with jesus christ i was baptized as a baby but i also got baptized as an adult because i don't remember anything as a baby so i did it again but that doesn't mean we don't baptize children because was it last year? There was a young girl. She's eight years old. And she's like, I know what this means. I want to be baptized. All right, let's do it. So it was great. Verse 40. As we saw on the on the screen, Azotus, he's all of a sudden taken uh, from that road with, with the eunuch. His job has been done. He goes to Azotus, which is on the west coast or uh, on the east side of the Mediterranean, but the west coast of the land of Israel. Uh, which is 20 miles north of that Gasa jerusalem road, and then he goes all the way up to Caesarea, which is 60 miles north. Okay, so this is where he goes. But in Acts chapter 21, and again, the Bible doesn't say stuff in here for no reason. Everything has a meaning. In Acts chapter 21, we see that Paul and his companions meet Philip at his home in Caesarea. He's still there, like I believe, 20 or 30 years later, and he is still known as an evangelist. In 21, it says Philip the evangelist's home. So, Philip is still going strong. The Bible is clear about finishing strong. It's good to start out with a bang. Some people, they get saved, they're so excited, they want to do, do, do. Good to start out with a bang. It's good to have that excitement, but it's more important to finish strong because the Apostle Paul tells us that. Unfortunately, some listening to uh, sermons all around the country today, some people are really, really excited. But some of those, a small percentage, maybe, a mediocre percentage won't even go the distance. They won't even finish the race. Some will barely hold on to the faith. Some will start out with a bang, but a few years later they'll barely hold on to the faith because what the world has to offer is equally as attractive with what God has to offer. And they, they do the dance, the double-minded dance. You know, they're, I, I want to go to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. But man, look at, look at, I could have money. I could have this. I could have that. I could have fame. And they just go back and forth. And unfortunately, this happens a lot in Hollywood. People who are famous and wealthy they, they, you hear about a conversion experience, and they go back and forth. You know the '60s was there was like the Jesus movement, and a lot of these artists you know, "Hey Jesus, Jesus, where are they now? Where have they finished? Some of them are just they 've just totally denied the faith. so it's just something to look at. Others will develop a Christian community mentality and refuse contact with the outside world and not even realize they're doing it. Sometimes Christians get into the mentality of, okay, my kid's got to be in a Christian school. I've got to have Christian friends. i got to have Christian this, Christian that, Christian this. And what they find out is that one day they wake up and they're completely cloistered from the outside world. I actually find it very refreshing to go uh, on my police job and meet people who don't know the Lord and to somehow have an effect on their lives. It's exciting. You know, it's refreshing. Salt can't be salt to other salt. Salt and light has to be to a, a decaying world, not to other salt. We need to get up out of our comfort zones and start reaching these people, right? I remember uh, some months ago, um, I don't know, some months, some years ago, I uh, was out of work. I was pretty new on the department and uh, I was out of work because of a physiological reason and I thought that I was never going to go back to work and I was going to have to leave my job. And I remember counseling with Pastor Mark Nigro, who's now a uh, pastor in Italy. Uh, He started a church in Italy a few years back. And I counseled with him, and I said, I think the Lord is leading me to be a pastor. And he said, slow down. (laughs) He said, you know, Joe, a lot of people covet our position. This man had, he still does, he has incredible wisdom. He goes, a lot of people covet our position being here on staff, in a church, pastors. He goes, but you know what, I covet your position. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, Joe, I could get out of this office, walk all around this building in this complex and not have one person to talk to about the Lord. All day long, I talk to save people. He goes, you have the opportunity to go out into the world and share the gospel with people. I'll tell you what, I never forgot that counsel, how true it is, right? So run strong, but finish strong, right? Now, I just want to come back to a point with all this. So with all that was going on in Samaria, what was God's purpose in ministering to one Ethiopian man. It seems like God did a lot of work to get Philip to pull him away from Samaria where he was doing good things, to get him on this road some miles away, to get a hold of this uh, Ethiopian eunuch, give him the gospel, talk to him, and then boom, he sends him somewhere else. Why did he do that? Why did he just pull him out there like that? Well, Ethiopia today, I actually was reading about Ethiopia since doing this study, um, is one of the last few strategic bastions against Islamic takeover in Africa. Africa is comprised of some 45 plus countries. People think Africa's a country. It's not. It's a continent. It's 45 plus countries with different governments, different faiths, a lot of different things going on there. And there's really an a, a underground spiritual hidden battle for the continent of Africa. And you have Christians who were multiplying immensely through the love of Christ, doing incredible things there, reaching people missionaries from Europe and the United States pouring resources into Africa. And then you have what's going on in Darfur, the war-torn region, ethnic cleansing, and you have the Islamic takeover. The fundamental Islamists are coming down with a lot of money, for, uh, Islamic money, with bombs and with, with uh, RPGs and with AK-47s and they're they're dominating the people. They're dominating the people into submission into believing in Islam. So you have this incredible thing going on in Africa. You see some real strongholds on both sides. But what it shows me was that what was the Ethiopian's role with his country? You know, it's very possible that he was instrumental in salvation being brought to his entire country. If you follow Ethiopian history, it's been pretty steady as far as being a haven for people of faith. And it's been pretty good uh, as far as being uh, a Christian uh, country. And it just, to me, shows the value of individuals. Number one, the value of one individual, Philip. He was obedient to go into the desert and and say, you know what, I don't really get what's going on here, but I'm going to be obedient to you. And also the obedience of the Ethiopian eunuch to be receptive to the word, to be receptive to the Holy Spirit, and to take that newfound faith back to his country. So what it shows me here is that God cares big time about individuals. Some individuals in this world make incredible impacts on people. Look at D.L. Moody. That one person you talk to may become a D.L. Moody. May become a William Tyndale. May become a Charles Stanley or a Lloyd Pulley or one of my all-time favorites, Anthony DeBrito back there. <laughs> I, I was serious about that. So it just goes to show you the the value of the individual that God sees. And talk about streams in the desert. It's just amazing with something that seems so spiritually dry, how if you're obedient to God, he could bring life into that desert and turn it into a lush paradise. So it goes to show me that obedience to God leads leads to fruit produced. Now, sometimes seen in our lifetime and sometimes not. And see, that's the most frustrating part, especially to me when you, you're laboring and you're laboring and you're laboring and sometimes you don't see the fruit. But we're not always going to see it on this side of eternity. And my wife will be sure to tell me this next time I get into a slump. She says, listen to your own messages. She's very good like that. Uh, but definitely the impact, the impact will be felt all throughout eternity. Let's pray.